Hello and welcome to the podcast, What I Wish I Knew as a Newly Qualified Teacher, with me, Jeremy Crook. This is a show where my guests and I will share with you our experiences, both good and bad, of life as a new teacher. Today, I'm talking to Wendy Cobb, who has the most varied educational CV of anyone I have spoken to. Currently, she has a range of roles at Canterbury Christchurch University, including being the lead for the primary ITE priority areas of behaviour, working with parents and emotional health, as well as being the academic link tutor for the PGCEI in collaboration with the City School Pakistan. She has extensive experience of working with school-based teacher education programmes and has also worked in a number of primary and secondary schools across Kent, London and Essex in a variety of teaching, leadership, advisory and coaching roles. She's also been a leadership coach for the Achievement for All charity, working closely with schools to develop strong partnerships with parents to support pupil progress. Crikey, Wendy! That is one extensive background in education. And I know that I haven't even mentioned everything. Thank you for talking to me today. Hello, it's a pleasure, Jeremy. Uh, Wendy, you know I always like talking to you. Wendy and I used to work together on one of the teacher training courses. And uh, I used to go to the meetings with her just so I could learn from her. So uh, it's a real privilege to be talking with you today. It's completely reciprocal, Jeremy. (laughs) Uh, You're so sweet. You always were. So let's start at the beginning. Did you always want to be a teacher? Well, I have to admit this, Jeremy, no. And no. I feel ashamed to say this because I'm interviewing regularly. I've just interviewed actually this week some new um, applicants to teaching and most of them say that they've always wanted to be a teacher and they <laughs> wax lyrical about the teacher that turned them into the um, interest in education. And I can't say that I did. Although I have to say, when I left um, university, I was intending actually to teach um, Japanese. I'm uh, not really? Japanese. Teaching Japan, <laughs> teach English in Japanese. In Japan. Oh, teaching um, English and, in Japan. Yeah. Right. I was about to be <laughs> and, massively and to impressed. Be a, yeah, I'm sorry, don't be impressed. Um, it wasn't to be a teacher, actually. It was just to get away and to travel around the world. Of course. So that's the nearest. But no, I had a, a different career. I was intending to go around the world, but I actually met my husband in the last year and came home. Um, worked in personnel management for a few years and then had my children. And it was after I'd been at home for a little while with my children that I wanted to go into a career that was meaningful. It was really important for me that I did Mm. something that made a difference. And, of course, nothing could be better than teaching, but I didn't choose teaching um, purposely for that's the one thing that I want to do. But I did think it would be useful because um, holidays, useful, for the children yep, I realized very rapidly that didn't work no <laughs> Never had your holidays <laughs> um but it actually did actually fit in with my experiences then I was actually um training uh doing some work actually in schools helping out with the teachers there so I had a lot of experience in school so it, it worked very well but no I can't say I actually wanted to be a teacher and Jeremy do you know what I'm not even sure that I'll be doing it in a few years time I never do What's around the corner? You just don't know. No, you don't know, do you? And I think that's a good way to be. Do you think that having a career before you became a teacher actually made you a better teacher or made you appreciate the impact you were having on young people more? Yes, I think it did make a difference. I knew myself that I wouldn't have been very good going into the classroom in my 20s. 
I wasn't ready for that. So I needed a little bit of world experience. I think I would have been very frustrated and I'm very impressed by our young um, trainees, how they are very committed at a time when actually they could be going out and exploring the world and having all that wonderful um, experiences. And I think I would have found that very difficult because it is a very time consuming job. You have to really devote yourself to it. Um, having children, that just definitely changed my perspective. And I was thinking about them a lot when I was doing my teaching and I was really dedicated to it when I actually did become a teacher, really dedicated. And, and I think I wouldn't have been able to do that when I was younger. No, that's right. I was lecturing today and the trainee teacher said to me, because I had another career before I started teaching, and they said, when did you realise the, the power of what you were doing? And I said, really, when I had my own children, I realised just how important it was to nurture children into being thinking, uh, sensible human beings. And that was probably more important than anything else. And, uh, and I think sometimes we lose sight of that, don't we, in schools at the moment. We've become fixated on progress and data and all those things that actually don't necessarily produce a great human being. And I know that after having had a career and had my children, I thought, you can make so much difference to young minds by nurturing their own ability to think. And I still think that's the case. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that, Jeremy. And I'm probably one of the world's worst parents. I think teachers um, <laughs> with children often know. Oh, what a, what oh, a great they? phrase. That's a great <laughs> phrase, know, that is. I, I would um, object to all sorts of things that they might be asked to do because actually I think about them developing themselves as humans and I want to spend that time with them mm. doing that. So, you know, I might object to certain types of homework. And, totally. Uh, <laughs> and uh, and, and I, you know that we've had a conversation before about data. Um, I go absolutely cold when I see data mm. in schools because it changes our perception of what we're actually teaching. We start to teach just that number and not the child. And, and I literally do oh, shake. Oh, that's such when a good phrase. School, Can I you just say that again? Shake. What was just that? Say that. <laughs> we, what did we, I say, Jeremy? We start to teach the number and not the child. Not the child. Thank you. I said that really well, didn't I? Yeah, you sure did. <laughs> but I, 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 I'm not exaggerating this. I literally, in school, when, when I began teaching, we didn't have a great emphasis on data, actually. That wasn't there in the first year or two. It came in within a couple of years. And I literally started shaking when we, we present, got presented with these lists that we had to track. Mm. And because I found it, it didn't help me at all. I know some teachers do. They, they really um, value that data because they can interrogate that data and say, what do I need to change? But it, it moved me away from my connection with my children. And that's the thing I found very frustrating about data. Yeah, and, and I think that's that's absolutely right. I remember one inspection I had at one of the schools where I was head teacher. And, and the lead inspector, who I wasn't all that impressed with, if I'm honest, said to me, um, you don't analyse the data of the groups enough. I said, well, I don't need to analyse the groups. I analyse each individual child and we treat them as individual children. The groups are an irrelevance. I said it's an arbitrary measure brought in as something else schools should do. I don't actually see the benefit if I know the individual children really well and the teacher does. So I said Ofsted does it through whichever report they were producing at the time. I said, you do the group analysis. We do individual child analysis. And how can we help a child be the best they can be? And I said, ask me about any child in the school. 
go and ask me about any child. Just pick one. Here's the list. Just pick one, and I'll tell you about them as learners. And he said, oh, we haven't got time to do that. And in the <laughs> blooming report afterwards, it said uh, the school should analyse groups of children more effectively, but it does know individual children very well. And I thought... <laughs> Dear, oh dear, where, what have we come to where clumping children together into groups and crunching data becomes some sort of valuable exercise? I never understood it. Um, I have got a tip for um, new teachers. Um, when I used to do my seating plans at the beginning of the year, you get given the um, grades from the previous year, don't you? And you've got a you label do. for a child. So I used to put those labels on the children and sort of think about my groupings and put that in there. And then I used to put that away for about three or four weeks and do my own sort of thinking and reflecting about those children and then I'd make my own analysis of what I thought they were mm. and I would say it would be completely different I would say oh that child over there has got a real potential I can really see that and then I'd look back and say oh it's only a whatever grade it was that's it and yeah it completely changed my perceptive of um, my perception of those children and what they could do um and if you keep that data in front of you you won't do that because you'll just be focused on well they're only three i need them to be four or they're only mm. you know or they're five they're fine actually that's not my, what you might be seeing in the classroom no and, and what we want to see is the child in front of us don't we and to say how can i maximize what this child does by actually teaching the child and uh yeah that that does frustrate me a bit i was once working in a school in east london and they asked me to work with the lower key stage two leader interviewing staff about their data and uh, we interviewed one teacher and she came with her data and the um leader of lower key stage two said well some of this data has gone down from uh, the end of last year and i said well can you go and get your books then and we'll look at the work they're doing and she brought the books and her judgments were very accurate and i said so what i'm seeing here is maybe that data isn't accurate from the end of year two to now so i said shall we get the books from last year and have a look and it was just totally inaccurate data the school wanted certain data to be at a certain level so clearly the teacher before had put it there doubtless under immense stress from the school to reach certain levels of data and what you've said is just a breath of fresh air read the data put it in the top drawer look at the child look at what their potential is look at what they're capable of and then teach to that anyone listening to this please do that please look at the child before you look at anything else we could stop now we won't of course because i'm thrilled already by the things you've said but let's go back to your first memory of being a teacher first observe lesson perhaps what was that like okay so it was a my first observe lesson by my link tutor from the um the university was a bit of a surprise because I wasn't expecting that tutor to come that day and um, I'm a very organized person oh, right. and I would have planned really carefully to do something really exciting but I had actually planned that day to do so he was going to come in the afternoon I planned to do some really exciting stuff in the morning so I was doing lots of drama history literacy um, we were doing role play I'd given them all props they were out doing um, freeze frames it was really exciting they loved the morning but the afternoon I planned when the tutor was going to come in was a science lesson and I'd done something a little bit naughty which I'm sure a lot of students do 
I planned something for an assignment because I needed some data for my assignment. That's definitely what lots of trainees do, isn't it's it? It's very naughty, isn't it? Um, so it was it was a valued, valuable lesson, but it wasn't going to be very interesting. It was a review lesson on evaporation and condensation, and I wanted to discover lots of misconceptions, and it was going to develop them, but I knew it would be a little bit boring. But I thought they've got a very exciting morning. It's okay. I'll have given them a great fun during the morning. They'll be okay with me. Anyway, so um, I got a phone call in the morning to say um, the tutor was coming. My school were very kind to me. They helped me to rewrite my lesson plan at lunchtime. So it oh, looked good. A bit more. We used to do it by pen in those days. It wasn't on the paper, so you have to write it out by hand. So I had a few minutes at break time or something to uh, to write that out. One thing um, really helped me with this um, observation was that I'd already made a really good connection with my teaching assistants. I had a couple of students in the classroom with... Um, special educational needs and uh, I often had my two TAs in there so I got them on side this is really important if you're a student teacher get your TAs on side very 100%. quickly I'd also then prepare the children because we knew now that the tutor was coming in the afternoon even if I hadn't planned specifically for it so I told them about their groupings and they knew where they were going to sit so before this lesson they were going into the TV room that's when we had TVs and we sat and watched things like a geography film or something that's like it. that you can remember those days Jeremy mm. So they were going in to do that. And so they were all prepared how they would line up and the children that they would sit next to. So that was fine. And the tutor didn't come into the lesson straight away. So I started off this lesson and very soon, very quickly into this lesson, one of my brightest children in the classroom said, this is boring. Oh, no. Really. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. It's going to be a failure. What am I going to do my very first lesson? I'm going to absolutely fail here. So I worked my socks off even before the tutor came in to really motivate the children and to make it sound as though it's really exciting and to listen. And I was going around watching what they were doing and picking up things. And, oh, that's a really interesting thought you've got there. And, and then we got on and the tutor came in and we got on to them um, creating, thinking about their questions. What do they want to investigate next? And then how were they going to investigate it? So they were then in pairs working out um, a science experiment that they could do to solve their question that they wanted to find out. And this is where Alex came in. And I will never forget Alex. Um, he's just imprinted, his face is imprinted on my memory. <laughs> and he wanted to find out whether steam could travel round corners. And I thought, oh, this is really exciting. And Alex, what a how great are you going to it was so it was a great question mm. and he proceeded to explain the experiment he was going to do and i said do you know what what we really need is for you to model this to come up to the front of the board and show us what you want to do so there he got his chalk it was chalk then chalk yes, of course. he got his chalk and he was oh, drawing Wendy, the that you're, you're making such great memories for me <laughs> wheeling fantastic. tvs around getting the chalk out <laughs> yeah. But there was Alex, he was drawing his, his experiment and he explained it so well. And I did that kind of dialogic teaching where we're sort of unpicking this and then building that question on and inviting the children in the classroom. I didn't know what dialogic teaching was then, but I was doing it. And that's mm. what you, know, you end up doing. And the other, the children were getting really motivated as well. And they just like a spark went. It's one of those lessons when you have that. Um, chick sent me higher flow moments, you know, when everybody's uh, going, yes, got it. And their heads were away and they were sparking. And I could see in the corner of the room, the tutor was busily writing and sort of this smile was developing on his face. And he left actually before the end of the um, lesson. He went out beaming. And I think the end of the lesson probably went into disaster because I just went. Ugh. Of course. <laughs> 
But anyway, he went out and he said to me, my mentor came back to me later and he said, he said, something special is going on in that classroom. And do you know what? There was something special going on in that classroom. And what it was, we were all listening to each other. Yeah. We were all making connections. And I absolutely learned at that point, it is all about those relationships and making connections. And not all my lessons were like that, but the good ones were like that. And I remember mm. that forever. And I remembered Alex and I told that class afterwards, you were the class that kept me in teaching because if it hadn't been for you, my final placement, that was my first placement, my final placement was really difficult. Oh, if I had that first, I may not have stayed on as a teacher. But I said, you're the ones that kept me into teaching, and particularly Alex, because he sparked the class that day. So I'll never forget that. Anyway, it was tricky, and then it was wonderful. And it's just a mo those moments, you remember them, don't you? You those do, and that, that's such a good summary of the whole thing. It was tricky, and then it was wonderful. Because that's that's the very nature of teaching, isn't it? Every single day you have tricky moments and you have wonderful moments. And it's for those wonderful moments that, that you just love the job. Yeah, and it's those wonderful moments that actually the children like to be in your class. And they know sometimes it's not going to be wonderful and sometimes you're going to have to do boring things and it's going to be hard. But if you have those sparky lessons, those really mm. exciting things, and of course I hadn't planned that to be exciting, but we made it exciting, or Alex made it exciting. And you have to leap on those things that you see. When, when children come up with something like that, you have to capture it. Forget what you were doing before, capture those moments yes. because they're the things that are going to motivate and encourage those students. And children leading that learning um, can't get better than children actually um, leading the learning in the classroom. Oh, it's just so exciting. When I was lecturing today, there was a point where I had nothing to do, really. Everyone was engaged. They knew what they were doing. And I, I said, I'm going to interrupt you, not because you're not working really well, because you are. I said, but I used to have moments like this in class with children, and they were all working really hard, and I was desperately trying to find someone to intervene with because I thought, I can't just sit down here now and watch them learn. And I said, but that happened. Every now and again, everyone was just totally focused. And I said, they were magic moments where actually you didn't need to do anything. They were so clear. The context for learning was so appropriate. They were utterly excited by what they were doing. They had loads of ideas. They knew where they wanted to go, all that metacognition stuff. They knew the processes they were going to go through as they were learning. It just took me back to those times. You know, and well, you know, Jeremy, there's this, this a saying that you hear a lot in teaching about every minute counts. Mm. And it, you, kind of, you get the impression that that sentence means, or that phrase means, that you have to be doing something as a mm. teacher every minute because if you're not, no learning's happening. But sometimes, actually, you actually need to just stand back and let it happen. You do. And we feel, I think, sometimes now that that's, we're not doing anything as a teacher if we're doing that. Sometimes you just sit back, get on, do your marking, do whatever it is, and just let them get on and, yeah. and think for themselves. Absolutely, and that's what we want, isn't it? We talk, we hear all this stuff all the time about independent learners, and yet... We interrupt them so often yeah. and uh, and think that it's more about us than it is about them. And uh, But it does take a bit, doesn't it? You need a bit of confidence, don't you, to say, I'm just going to leave them. Um, you do. You, you can do. still check on them, but, but I'm not going to intervene. I'm just going to see what they're doing and listen in a bit. That reminds me of another little story, actually. Um, it, was, it was another observation. Actually, later on, it's probably about fifth or sixth year of teaching, maybe, 
and my head teacher came in with I think it might have been someone from the local authority and I was teaching we had sets then I'm not an advocate of sets at all I, mm. I really dislike them but I had the lower achieving set um and I had, it was a literacy lesson and it was a great lesson actually we, we did really well and I had really good feedback at the end of it but one thing I got told but you know we looked at the clock they said and break time finished at 10 or whatever it was and you didn't start your lesson till 10 past 10 and you wasted 10 minutes and and that was ridiculous because actually what I was doing in that 10 minutes was building connections with that set mm. again I was talking to them as they came in and mm. settling them down and and you know what were you doing and oh that's great and it wasn't wasted time. It was really, really valuable time. And I think we've, I don't think I would be told that now because I think we've, come, I hope I wouldn't, because I think we've come on in terms of understanding about emotional regulation mm. and, you know, build, build, building those relationships and calm time and, and getting children ready to learn. But back then we were literally counting minutes of how much time did you spend on history, English, science, etc. Yeah, what was, a bonkers time that was. <laughs> It's just crazy oh dear i spent 10 minutes the lesson was good but you wasted 10 minutes yeah the, the schools that understand what children need emotionally to be effective learners would never criticize you would they for doing that my my concern is we definitely have some tick box schools they measure things like you've just described you mm. haven't used every minute for the lesson itself well no but i can't do the lesson unless actually i get the children into the the right emotional state for their learning if i want to really challenge them i need them in the right emotional state and that, and sometimes we used to call it non-problem talk because i used to do it with parents a lot as well when they were cross you know you'd, you'd go and meet them at the office and then you'd chat to them about yeah. nothing certainly yeah. not about <laughs> the problem because by the time they got to your classroom they were a little bit calmer and they weren't going to shout at you and yell because their emotional state had been regulated. You have to do that all the time, don't you? You do. But I, do you know what? As, a, as an NQT, I wish I had that knowledge that my NQTs now um, do have. Mm. I mean, when they're going up from our teacher training, they do have that understanding, could articulate that, I think. I didn't. I kind of knew I needed to do it, but I didn't know why. I couldn't explain it. I had none of the theory behind it at all. So I knew it was right, but I couldn't argue it because mm. I couldn't really, I didn't have the words. I didn't have the theoretical knowledge underpinning it so that is one thing I wish I had had in my training and I certainly didn't have that at all um, I knew in my heart what I what I wanted to do and what I felt was right but I didn't have anything to back that up because no but that sometimes that's enough serious. isn't it I, mm. I think I think teachers have to back their instinct this mm. feels right I'm not quite sure but it feels right so I'm going to do it if I'm proved wrong I'll find out why it wasn't the right thing yeah. But this just feels right. And 99% of the time, it will be right if you back your instinct. And uh, and there might be other things you could do as well. But I, I do wish that teachers had more confidence and that leaders would support their teachers in making some instinctive judgments if they haven't got the knowledge. Because if you yeah. haven't got it and you've got to make a decision at that point, you've still got to make it, haven't you? You can't be processing 55 different ideas you've got to say my instinct says i need to put my arm around this child my Absolutely. instinct says i've got to do this this or this and uh, rather than thinking what's the policy what's the policy i can't remember i'm not sure what to do follow your instinct i would say very strongly right what about what about your first year then as an nqt did you have anything that was a real challenge or a uh, 
Grand oh, of course I did, Jeremy. I don't think anybody gets an NQT year without um, they <laughs> definitely don't. challenges. I just... But I am very organised. I, I, I always tell my students that um, at the beginning of every year, I have a very detailed plan of what I'm going to actually talk through with the children, how I'm going to plan all my routines, my transitions. I have almost like a two-page list of things that I'm going to work through with the, with the children. If I get that right in the first few weeks, you know, it really sets me up for the rest mm, of the year, and that's definitely. great. And I had that in my NQT year year as well unfortunately my plans were thwarted um, because the very first day of my teaching um, in that NQT year right outside my classroom literally right outside my classroom just two steps from my classroom door um, they were building a new reception and on the very first day there was a step there was a door and a step outside it and there was a chap with a pneumatic drill drilling the step on day one, when I was bringing my class into the classroom, oh, no. and he was doing that all day long, and for the rest of the term, I think it was complete, that complete term, there was noise, there was banging, there was people on the roof, um, so... Uh, there's a lot of shouting went on in my classroom trying to make myself Wendy, heard. Wendy, I always knew you were Or miming. I did a lot of miming. <laughs> so, you know, I won't talk now. I'll just draw this. So all my great plans are being ordered and, and, and whatever didn't quite fall to um, as good as I wanted them to. So I don't think it was quite as calm and... <laughs> and uh, as, uh, you know, uh, yeah, measured as I that's so difficult, it isn't it, be. when the builders are in? It, yes. You, you have to do it, but... I, you yeah. think they could have said, well, I know we're starting, but day one, you Not cannot use <laughs> well, outside drill. the classroom. Well, can I add to that then, Jeremy? Here's another one. I, I got some really, really well, actually, with my caretaker. I would, this is a, a great advice, actually. Get on with your caretaker. Get yes. on with the cleaning staff. And your cleaner, yeah. Absolutely. They're the first people you need to talk to. Nevertheless, your caretaker, caretaker will still try to try you out, test you out as an NQT. So he tested me out as an NQT. As I said, we had blackboards. And during that first year, they were um, changing the blackboards to whiteboards. This is not interactive whiteboards. This is whiteboards you wrote on with a pen. Mm. Okay, so remember that as well, Jeremy. This is a real step up, wasn't it? You didn't have dust anymore. No, it was. You You didn't have all that dust. You didn't have anyone go and take a wooden ruler and bang the duster outside. So this was this was a real step up, although I quite liked writing in chalk, I have to say. Mm. Anyway, I was doing a maths lesson. We had coins in the room. I had visitors in the room. We had some Japanese visitors in the room and they were merrily taking pictures. We'd given them permission. I don't know why. We obviously didn't have safeguarding rules in those mm. days, but there they were taking pictures. And um, they possibly were even taking films. I don't know. But they were in my classroom watching my lesson and the children were lovely normally. But then the caretaker came into the room, opened the door. I was at the other side of the classroom because I never talked from the front then. I don't know about you, but I wandered around, sat Always, next to children, all the time. the side of the class. It was so boring. So I wasn't front. near the front, near him. And he mm. came in and says, I'm going to change your blackboard into a whiteboard. And he did it then. <laughs> he went no. into the room. He, he started ripping off the blackboard off of my wall. Can you believe that? In the middle of my lesson. I can't and believe I that. I just looked at him in stunned silence. There was nothing I could do. He started now. <laughs> Banging goes on again. And you can imagine what was happening in the classroom then. The children were getting very unsettled. There was oh, coins God. flying around my classroom. Oh, I was no. shouting, Billy, put this down, whatever. And, of course, the photographs were going by these Japanese people thinking, this is it. <laughs> 
interesting, isn't it? So I had this fear, I had this fear, I've forgotten about it until you mentioned doing this podcast, but I had this fear for years that I'm on a Japanese candid camera equivalent and they're saying, look what's happening in English classrooms, <laughs> the chaos that's going on there. So that's my fear that I am a celebrity in Japan. Or well, one of these don't have a fear, be proud. And uh, look, I kept my lesson going. As the pneumatic drill was sounding, as the caretaker was soaring. Well, there was nothing I could do, Jeremy. He just did it. <laughs> I, that's just caretakers do. They, they... It just wouldn't happen now, but that's the sort of thing no. that happened back then. It was a no. joy. Can of you tea. imagine? We've got these visitors from abroad. They're coming. We, we really want to show English education <laughs> in the best light. I was going to fit the whiteboard, boss. Oh, well, right, then you can do that. <laughs> Just make sure you go right in the middle of the lesson when the <laughs> Japanese visitors are taking pictures. I don't think we had any health and safety rules there. My my head teacher that um, recruited me, he left actually at the end of that year, but he was a smoker, so he smoked in his staff room right next to my office as well. So I had that <laughs> going on too. So I think generally it was a um, you know a different world, shall we say, back then. Uh, it definitely was. I mean, there were there were benefits to it, but there were definitely some things that that really weren't very good weren't yeah. they but so what about greatest achievement as a teacher I mean you've told us some great things already or one of your favorite memories perhaps okay well, this is really hard isn't it what's your greatest achievement I think in terms of answering your greatest achievement you probably aren't going to know that until many many years ahead no, that's some right child will get in contact with you as an adult or you will hear something and say oh so and so was in your classroom this actually happened to me a few years ago and I was teaching at the university and somebody said to me I can't remember the name of this person but so-and-so was in your maths classroom um at maths class it was a math set um and it was in your math set that he decided to be a teacher and he was one of our year three teachers uh, trainee teachers at the time and I thought wow who was that he wasn't in my class actually he was just in my set and that's those kind of things that you know are, and a great achievement but if you, if you talk about my greatest achievement in terms of memories and um, funny things that I remember. I think my greatest achievement is doing Tudor dancing to um, the average white band, uh, white bands, pick up your pieces. What? Um, no, that's on the fun, the fun oh, music song. Well, <laughs> I, right, I've got to explain this. When I was um, a trainee in my final placement, I said to you, it's quite challenging. And I remember one day I was observed by my tutor and I was doing a maths lesson and and uh, we were having some feedback afterwards. So while we were having this feedback discussion, my classroom teacher and the head teacher took my class into the hall and they were doing Tudor dance with them. And as my tutor and I walked back, we walked through the, the um, hall and came back to, to sort of talk in the staff room afterwards and we saw them absolutely not in control at all of these children the children were running rings over the and it made me feel so reassured because i was having challenging times with them and i thought well they can't control them it's not just me then that's fine um but many years later so this would have been about five six years later i was doing tudor dance with a year five class and i had memories of that and i thought right i'm going to get this good i'm going to do this well so I really planned it very well with them. And we did five or six lessons on the scheme that I did very authentically with authentic music. But I had in mind this final session that I was going to do differently. Now, I love dancing, Jeremy. 
And by this time, I was actually working four days a week. I'd gone down and decided I needed one day to be with my children because I missed them so much. Mm. So I had one day so I could pick my youngest child up from school. And on those days, I'd do my housework and I'd put my music on and I'd be dancing around to my music. So one of these days, I had um, pick up your pieces on the, the, the CD and I thought, God, this would be really good, wouldn't it, for doing doing something with the children. And I can link this to the Tudor dancing. So on my last session, I didn't warn the children. I didn't warn any of the teachers. But I taught them all these moves about um, what Tudor um, people would be doing in the fields. And they'd be picking apples and doing all sorts of things. And I taught them all these moves. And then just at the end, we put it together to a sequence. And I put on the music. Oh, and there you. we were lying dancing to the average white band and it was fantastic and oh, i was so was. enjoying it and we had some classrooms all around the um assembly hall and they were thinking what's well, going on and different teachers were coming in and they were joining in and it was just fab it was just fab those are the fun times that i remember and i think wow mm. you know those creative moments when you can just play with the curriculum and Absolutely. get you know get creative can we still yeah, do that excite children and interest them I, you I'm know i was only just telling my students this week that i i've realized as i've been a university lecturer that i've become more and more boring and i taught too many ologies and i need to go back to those creative fun things that i used to do when i started teacher training mm. i used to sing all the time used to get them dancing used to do all sorts of things and over the years i've been become too clever and too boring i need to get back to doing those things again <laughs> Yeah, but you're you're so easy to listen to and to talk to. So I'm sure you're not boring at all, even if you don't sing as much as you did. When I was lecturing today, the trainees said, uh, oh, Jeremy, they said, it's been so much fun today. We were doing practical science, which is always fun, of course. But, um, but they said, we haven't laughed so much for weeks. It's so good. And I said, well... You know, there is that research about you've got to laugh 50 times a day to stay healthy or whatever it is. And, uh, you know, if you're four years old, you've got to laugh 100 times a day to stay healthy. <laughs> and um, and they said, well, we I reckon we've reached our 50 today. I said, good. That's what we're that's meant brilliant. to be doing. That's brilliant. What about, uh, you know, times when you haven't laughed? Difficult times in teaching? Real challenging times? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I have to say my first um, school... There was not a day ever that I didn't want to go in, even though it was a challenge and there were challenging days. There was not a day. But the particular experience I'm going to share with you was when I was asked to step and take over um, a, a sort of emergency cover, really, for an as mm. assistant headship, which is, was also acting deputy head as well. And it was taking over a class, a year five, six class in January, which is a really tricky time to oh, do it anyway. Oh, that's difficult. And it was even more difficult because it was just the time when the year sixes then were grouped together so that they could prepare for SATs. Mm. They hadn't been together before. They were expecting to be with a teacher that had been working in that school for many years and they knew that that would be that teacher that they were going to have. Instead of that, the year five, six class had me. Then they went off to different groups. The year six came together with me. And I was also having to be deputy head as well, which is really challenging. But I was actually also there four days a week. So one day a week I was at university. So I wasn't oh, in the course crikey. every day. Um, and it was really, really difficult. And those 
two terms were the most challenging in my career and I'm sure children that were in my class will have lovely stories about Mrs Cobb being really really stressed during that time <laughs> because they did try to wind me up terribly did they? Um, and I totally understood that they were why they were doing that but it was very hard and what happened Jeremy is I did a really silly thing I didn't follow my instincts I sort of listened to some of the people that were saying you need to do this like the head teacher and some mm. of my TAs that didn't like my style because they weren't used to it. Yeah. And I kind of a little bit adjusted the way I was doing things and it really didn't work and it made things worse. And it wasn't until I realised that and said, no, you go back to what you want to do. I was, I had started off being very creative with um, doing some creative challenges, being very motivational but also quite controlling too that's really important when you mm. start you need a bit of that too yeah. but really creative and, and my head teacher said no you've got to go back to basics you've got to do this and a little bit I did of that and it really didn't work mm. and it wasn't until I, I went back to how I really thought I needed to engage with these children that things began to turn around it was incredibly difficult but there was a moment actually um i think it was in the summer term when the year six girls we were there was something um it must have been a jubilee year or something we had something in the playground we were all sitting there in the playground and having tea or something and these girls called me up come and sit with me mrs Cobb, come and sit with us and and they were so excited oh this is nice because they actually mm -hmm. like me <laughs> and uh, and they said when are you going to give us another challenge we really want another challenge we love your challenges oh, wow. and, and i thought oh great this is what I knew was happening and and there were children in the class and I actually got to level five and I, there's others that I didn't achieve anything with but some of them I inspired so much that they actually did really well much better than expectations for that class others didn't and I failed a lot miserably <laughs> with quite a yeah, lot of them but but but, but, but sometimes you do don't you and and circumstance yeah. plays its part in that and it's not because of your best efforts or your skill because I had a very similar experience. I was I was working as a consultant one day a week in a school. A teacher left at quite short notice. The head said, this is a year six class. It's the slightly below average group, and, and we must get them to age-related expectations. Could you teach them for one maths lesson a week? And I said, well, I can, but it would be much better if someone who's already teaching in the school teaches them, because if you're saying these are the ones who have to get to age-related expectations, it's going to take me 10 lessons to actually build a relationship with them. And she said, no, no, I want you to do it, because I know that you're a very skilled maths teacher. So I said, well, I'll have a go if you like, but I might be skilled, but without a relationship I can't push these children really hard to get age related and they were working at sort of average year five level and this was in February so we were we were a couple of months away from the sats and so she said well go in there and, and really push them hard with year six work so I, I went in just like you said totally against my beliefs that this was the right thing to do Oh, and they hated it, and they hated me. And there were probably 10 children in the class who had such severe problems outside of school, very vulnerable children. And this bloke turned up, pushing them hard, harder than they'd ever been pushed before. And they just kicked back, of course. Blimey, that was the hardest 10 days of teaching I've ever done. And unlike you, I'm not sure I succeeded with anyone. 
And I did say to the head after about three sessions, I said, I don't think this is working. And if you want these children to get to age-related expectations, you really should get one of the teachers they know well to teach them. And if you want, I'll teach one of the other groups. But this is the key group for you as a school in terms of math sats. And I said, I'm not going to get what you want. But she wouldn't change because none of the other teachers wanted to teach them. And, uh, and sadly, what was all too obvious came to pass and they didn't do very well, which was a real tragedy and, and very upsetting for me. But it just goes to show what you've said before, doesn't it, about relationships and uh, you've got to have that trust before you can really move children forwards. I mean, those children did finally develop a relationship. I mean, most of them. I, I can't say I developed a relationship with all of them because you, you do have years where there are some children you just can't connect and that was really difficult for me during my teaching times why I couldn't connect with certain children I, I found that very frustrating but again I think largely that's to do with a lack of knowledge about why their behaviours were the way they were I know a little bit better about that now I'm a bit mm. more trained but I did have that time to build a relationship with them and I you, you saw the when they when they were just getting ready to go into year six that's when it kind of yeah not to year six to transition into year seven that's kind of when it changed because they were then latching on to me then because now they were scared weren't they they were going into year absolutely seven. and now I was their friend and and it kind of all changed at those last few weeks and I really really enjoyed that and I remember mm. getting these really challenging boys they ended up singing in the final assembly because we were doing them they said how did you get so and so to sing I, mm. I don't know we just developed that trust in those last couple of weeks but it took that almost the whole of those two terms yeah to it just to goes to show doesn't it that just how important that is but also how long it takes and it's not something you can just magic up i always think how heartening it must be actually for inexperienced teachers listening to the trials and tribulations of more experienced colleagues like we've just said and and how we've had to overcome great challenges in our careers um and and i think as i say that's comforting because Everyone is going to go through those phases, but you will come out the other side and you'll come out a better teacher. So we're going to have to wind up in a minute, Wendy. But if, if you had one or two key bits of advice for inexperienced teachers making their way in education, what would you say to them? Well, I'm going to be a little bit lazy here and pick up something that um, a colleague of mine, a friend of mine, B. Stevenson, who's... Um, she works for the Family Links Centre for Emotional Health, and we do a lot of work together. We've done a lot of things with the university, actually, over several years. And we've written a few blogs together, and we wrote one during the pandemic. And we, we talked at the beginning about the fact that we overcomplicate things, and mm. B and I both believe that. We go back to basics all the time. But we we sort of summed things down to three essential things you could do during this difficult, challenging time. And I think this is going to go on this pandemic and all the issues around it. And yeah. it's going to affect us as teachers for a long time. And there were three things that we wrote about. And the first one was be open to difficult feelings. So we've explained our difficult feelings, haven't mm. we? And mm. be open to your own difficult feelings, be open to the difficult feelings of others, for parents, for children, for your peers. Recognise, you know, listen out for them listen out for your own and, and and please open up if you you're having those doubts you know don't just hide them in there just share them that's number one number two is empathize 
So if we can connect with our children, if we can connect with our parents, if we can connect with the caretaker, with the cleaner, yes. with you know anyone we meet, the head teacher, you know, empathise with your, your poor head teacher's role as well, that absolutely will stand you in massive stead. And the third thing we wrote about was, you know, you can't change a lot of things. You can't control a lot of things. So you've got to think about the things that you can influence. Mm. And one of the things you can influence is the way you respond. So it's the way you talk back to children, the way you respond to parents, an angry parent, um, a distraught child, someone that's, you know, seems to be really frustrating in your lesson, maybe to your mentor. You know, it's easy, isn't it, to get really negative? And, um, it is. But think about, actually, what can I do? I, the way I respond to things, even the way I feel about it, recognise my emotions and maybe try and work out how I can calm those down. What can I influence? Don't worry about what you can't influence, but what can I influence? If you mm. focus on those things, and I think we were talking before we even recorded this about, you know, being really proactive about behaviours. Don't wait until they happen. Think about what I can influence so that they, these bad behaviours don't happen. So those are my three things. Be open to difficult feelings, empathise, and think about what you can influence. And that's really your success for, for your career i think yeah definitely Ah, oh, wendy thank you so much that's been so good it's so good to talk to you again as i haven't spoken to you for a while but uh but it's so good to listen to your all your wise words which uh which will resonate with anyone who's ever taught and especially those who are inexperienced so thank you very much for sharing the time today and i hope to see you soon it's been a pleasure, Jeremy. How wise is Wendy? I could listen to her all day. Her focus on empathy reminds me of Dr. Love, AKA Leo Buscaglia, who was a professor in the Department of Special Education at the University of Southern California. He used to promote the concept of humanity's need for hugs, five to survive, eight to maintain, and 12 to thrive. And he said, too often we underestimate the power of a touch, a smile, a kind word, a listening ear, an honest compliment, or the smallest act of caring, all of which have the potential to turn a life around. And I think he was right. As teachers, we must play that nurturing role for those children or colleagues who need encouragement. So never hesitate to be that supportive person. So what now, listeners? Is there something that Wendy has said that resonates with you? I do hope so. So if you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please hit the subscribe button in your podcast app. We'll keep you updated on what's to come and more on Twitter at WhatNQT. I look forward to being with you next time for another thought-provoking chat. Until then, I'm Jeremy Crook, and this has been the latest podcast from What I Wish I Knew as an NQT. Slash... ECT. <laughs> <laughs>